friends and enemies, welcome to another Fuzz on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by True Tamdale. Hello. And Craig Eastman. Itka, itke, onski. So we're here for another chat <laughs> about some films. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. <laughs> So without much further ado, let's just get cracking it straight on into this. And the first one we're going to talk about for some reason is Death Wish. Craig, explain your explain explain your life decisions lately. <laughs> uh, I will, Scott. I will explain myself. Perhaps of all the subgenres in cinema, there is one: the revenge thriller, which refuses to go away for any length of time, despite having had nothing new to offer in terms of narrative or character <laughs> since sometime in the late seventies. Uh, a mainstay of the exploitation scene throughout the seventies and eighties, and almost single-handedly propping up the DTV catalogue throughout the nineties and early two thousands, the genre somewhat arbitrarily received a high-profile transfusion of male empowerment plasma in two thousand and eight, when Liam Neeson showed us all his very particular set of skills, uh, most of which seem to revolve around brutally dispatching brown people. Uh, to this day, I'm amazed the Daily Mail never did a free DVD for every reader promo. <laughs> regardless, of, regardless of whether the popularity of Taken spawned largely from a simmering early 21st century distrust of immigrants, it totally did. It seemed to <laughs> elevate the revenge movie's profile sufficiently to once more begin attracting big-name talent. And in the instance of Eli Roth's completely unnecessary recent Death Wish remake, that big name is Bruce Willis. Now, I know where Bruce has been slumming it a bit lately, and he and 50 Cent seem to have some sort of tax dodge going on regarding straight-to-on-demand action movies filmed in Eastern Europe uh, but his name can still draw some water and it's notable that at this point in his career, unlike some of his peers he seems to have accepted that his action credentials as a terrorist murdering machine are becoming somewhat tenuous In the instance of Death Wish Bruce's Dr Kersey, a mild-mannered Chicago surgeon who deals daily with the city's currently rampant gun crime and murder rate and whose wife and daughter are somewhat predictably assaulted during a break-in by violent thieves who scope out his wealth via a crooked car valley. Wife dead, daughter in coma, Kersey begins pursuing his options, most of which seem conveniently caught in the strainer of overwhelmed police department. Upper middle-aged murder machine it is then! Internet research, the best kind of research, yields an interesting number of results relating to something called guns, though Kersey seems immediately dissuaded by the notion that those need to be registered. Not to worry, his next patient into theatre conveniently drops a Glock on the floor next to his bed. Yeah, that wasn't at all contrived. I'm not kidding. Did you watch this, Scott? Uh, yeah. Oh, Are no. you gaslighting me? Because I didn't. <laughs> What follows is a predictable string of events from training montage, given the modern spin of YouTube tutorials, obviously, through clumsy, accident-prone first forays into murder. We've all been there. Terminating quite literally in brazen vigilante massacres of crooked mechanics, far too laconic street pushers, and at some point, the actual people responsible for killing Kersey's wife. Ah, the male empowerment fantasy is alive and well. Death Wish's crimes against intelligence are many, far too many to list here, uh, but with a name like Roth's attached to the director's chair, a certain portion of this movie's audience will be expecting explicit gore to be rolled into the recipe. And the news is that there's a bit, a little bit, but still quite shocking and cringeworthy when it happens. Uh, oddly for Roth, however, he seems to refuse to go all in, and this is one of the movie's biggest issues. I'm not particularly looking for the gore, but fence sitting on whether or not it is a shock vehicle, a thriller, or at times a comedy, <laughs> Death Wish commits the ultimate sin of being nothing in particular, and whatever message it presumably wants to pretend it has gets lost in an awful lot of disorganised chaos. Of all the crimes we must trudge through here, Joe Carnahan's script perhaps deserves the longest sentence. I've read numerous takes since watching the movie, many of which accuse Death Wish of being, quote, the wrong film at the wrong time. Uh, most notably, Jake Cole of Slant magazine offering the observation that, at a time when Americans are being subjected so overtly to police brutality, this movie suggests that they are not being brutal enough. I don't necessarily buy that. When have America's police departments ever not been accused of disproportionate force? Certainly not since the Vigilante Revenge movie was popularised. And I prefer to think of it as the wrong film at any time, if only because it serves no purpose other than to sustain the bizarrely perverted macho fantasy of imagining one's own family murdered as a gateway to being subsequently legitimised as a murderer oneself. Uh, there are moments where the movie feels as though it may at least be about 
out to have the good grace to establish a darkly comic tone, something Roth set out as a stall as far back as Cabin Fever, and perhaps one of his few discernible bona fide talents as a director. But there is simply no commitment, and moments such as a bowling ball stored at height braining an antagonist at an otherwise impossible juncture for Kersey <laughs> just end up looking like ridiculous Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> It's an incompetence in keeping with the characters as they're written. Police following Kersey's murderous spree seem to stumble on clues like farts in the wind. <laughs> One of the big breaks comes when Detective Rains, leading the investigation, witnesses some kids in the background of a crime scene reenacting Kersey's shooting. The kid enacting Kersey's role is using his left hand. His left hand? The guy in that first viral vigilante video was a lefty. That's what murder homicide police work looks like in this movie. So in some ways, I guess I sympathise with Kersey and his desire to run rampage, at least in a fantastical sense. A shame then that the film seems so intent on rooting itself firmly in the here and now, roping in actual Chicago radio DJs to offer such insightful commentary as vigilante good and vigilante bad in between set pieces in a ridiculously literal effort at social commentary. In terms of sympathy for the cast, I feel most sorry for Dean Norris, the inept detective reigns in question, who seems to spend much of his time shrugging at everything rather than detecting anything. But there are other wasted talents for sure, not least of all Elizabeth Shue, who portrays Mrs. Kersey for all of ten minutes before coming the cropper. Remember leaving Las Vegas? She probably doesn't. Even Vincent D'Onofrio deserves better than this. I think. Anyway, I don't think... <laughs> Steady, so- <laughs> Steady. <laughs> yeah. I don't think society needs or wants this movie right now. Have you ever seen a movie in which an angry old white man shoots bad men because the police won't? Well then, you've already seen this done better. Don't even torrent it. <laughs> you, I, I know, sorry, Scott, you've seen it so you have more to contribute. I'm just going to ask if, like, if it is actually worse than the Michael Winner films. I think contextually the first Death Wish and keep in mind that I saw it a long time ago uh, at least stood out for some reasons it was pioneering in a lot of senses Uh, some people seem to hold it in a lot of regards myself not so much the sequels (laughs) the sequels I only remember so much as I think is it the third one that Canon Films produced um, which has the the bizarre scene where he basically shoots up an entire apartment block with a 50 <laughs> like with yeah, a Bren gun or something. He's got just a, he's also just got a ridiculously massive handgun and that to kind of dirty Harry style. And it's like That's it. Shooting lots of people out of windows. Most people end up dying by being shot out of a window in a film, I think. Uh, yes, pretty much. Um, so, yeah, those are better than this. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> but Scott, feel free to disagree. Well, I mean, we've said many times in this podcast that people shouldn't be remaking good films they should remake bad films and do them better so this is listened to about half of that because because <laughs> <laughs> the first death wish was terrible and this is about as bad um, it's uh, well, i say i watched this i was in a room where it was on where i was distracted by pretty much anything else um there is not an awful lot of reasons to pay any attention to this film and uh, that's probably the content with which <laughs> which <laughs> deserves um, yeah i don't think about anything more you say it is a stupid film and i feel can, dumber for watching it <laughs> can i offer this summation for anyone who may be in two minds um drew this film climaxes with the bad guy coming a cropper um at the hands of bruce willis armed with tactical assault furniture <laughs> is that a new IKEA range? I'm not going to say any more than that. I'm actually, I'm actually worried. I might have piqued your interest now. <laughs> no, you, you don't have to worry about that, Greg. I was not in two minds at all. Okay. No, I was, <laughs> cool, um, cool. I, I just like to turn a phrase. I suppose I'm. I guess maybe I'm slightly piqued. There's like, um, is it some sort of weaponized chest of drawers? Oh, but close. If it is, then Macaulay Culkin did that first in Home Alone. So. It's, to- it's totally close. It's got one of those, oh, look, a bee huh? moments. Um, yes, at which point... Oh, I really some- care about the millions of bee moments, really, in this podcast. Yes, but then someone uh, is, yes, uh, Bruce Willis enables uh, uh, some tactical assault furniture and <laughs> thus uh, climaxes the movie. Does he hit someone over the head with a chair? Are you just building this up too much to make no, me watch this? <laughs> no, no, I wish I was. Uh, but yes, there you go. It's frustrating uh, because you, when, 
Joe Carnahan, I always I always remember him as being, oh, he's the guy that wrote Narc. Yes. Ma- <laughs> and and directed Narc. Yes. And, and then unfortunately went on to make Smoke and Aces. And yeah, the closest and Glory yeah, and Smoke and Aces too. And really the only claim he's got even remotely close was the the Grey, which was an old, an alright film. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, the, the, the he's one of these people who I will continue to give chances on based on something. Somehow, maybe it'll be another film that's as good as Narc. And thus far, that faith has not really been rewarded. No. Um, yeah, it's it's and, and certainly this goes no way whatsoever towards uh, restoring yeah. faith in him, and yeah, it's, it's just not worth your time or anyone else's. That's <laughs> the impression I had there too. It's almost like you read my mind, Scott, because that's exactly what I've been going to say. It's like, yeah, this has just brought up the, the mention of Joe Carnahan's like, who I remember so fondly because of Narcus, everything after. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. And Did that happen? At a certain point, Eli Roth, I mean, after, uh, was it Eli Roth who directed the first Hostel movie? Yes. Right. Well, See, subsequent to that, him. he kept getting, he's been marketed to us as nothing but this master of, uh, uh, the word's gone out of my head. Master uh, of being friends with Quentin Tarantino, yes. I think, is what you're looking for. <laughs> this this guy, this guy who is a dawn of the exploitation film genre, and there's just no evidence for it whatsoever. Yeah. Just stop giving him work, unless he's prepared to, <laughs> you know, to fr- to front the budget for a film entirely on his own and offer the studio a reasonable cut of it. Just don't, just walk away from the guy. <laughs> How can this guy keep getting movies made? I don't know. You don't think that. Um He's just the second coming of Tarantino, which is basically what he he was being portrayed as for such a long time, because his name is always associated with Tarantino. Oh, yeah, well, Tarantino was doing that whole thing, wasn't it, of Quentin Tarantino Presents. Yeah. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's own replacement. Yeah, this bizarre sort of desire for this guy to be the next him, but... And as much as I remember, um, as an actor, he's passable enough. I Mm. didn't like Inglourious Bass all that much, but I think he was, you know, passable enough, and he's got kind of... He's quite a good-looking guy, and he's got that kind of physicality. And for certain roles, you know, he he works well enough. But as a filmmaker, no, no, not at all, not at all. But there you go. We've wasted enough oxygen on this. Yes, yes, we have. He says with the authority and smugness of someone who didn't watch this. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, like someone to talk about Deadpool too, please. Can I, sir? Can I? Yes, you can. Oh, thank you ever so much. Unless I'm trying to be funny, I try and avoid the usual movie review cliches and sequels like Deadpool 2, the Deadpooling, test this most greatly because, well, it's so very similar to the original in tone and content that the most useful and concise thing I can say about it is that if you like the original, you'll like this. And if you didn't, I don't see much in here to change your mind. But we have a contractually obligated running time to fill, so I suppose we better bulk this out a little bit. <laughs> Wait, I signed no such contract. <laughs> uh, Deadpool 2 opens with a montage of what Ryan Reynolds' spandex-clad assassin Wade Wilson has been up to between films, which is, in the main, violently killing people. But they're bad people, presumably, so that's all right. Uh, this rather bites him in the ass when, after one of his targets eludes him, said crime lord later visits Wade and fiancée Vanessa, Morena Baccarin's flat, with some goons and guns killing Vanessa in the process before being dealt with. Distraught, Deadpool tries to kill himself, but his mutant healing factor refuses to let him go, with Colossus sweeping up the pieces and taking him back to Xavier's school for children that shoot lasers from their eyes and that. Deadpool <coughs> agrees to join the X-Men, but this first mission goes off the rails when he realises that flame-spewing young mutant they've been sent to reason with, Julian Dennison's Russell Collins, was being abused by the orphanage's staff. He's restrained before he can kill more than one of the orphanage staff, with Deadpool and Russell slapped with power nullifying collars and sent to mutant prison. Deadpool seems happy enough to be left to die, but Russell wants out and forges a bond with Wade Wilson, the world's worst father figure, and this is all thrown for a loop when Josh Brolin's Cable, my favourite Marvel vs. Capcom 2 character, appears from the future <laughs> with an impressive selection of weaponry and a burning desire to kill the barely teenage Russell to stop some future misdeeds. Deadpool's protective instincts kick in, and Deadpool and Cable fight to a standstill, escaping the prison in the process, while Russell befriends unstoppable beat-headed juggernaut, sadly not voiced here by Vinnie Jones. To shortcut the recap a bit, Deadpool and Cable form an uneasy alliance, Cable giving Deadpool a chance to turn Russell away from a life of murder and villainy, but they'll need to go through juggernaut, with Deadpool enlisting the help of Colossus, Brianna Hildebrand's negasonic teenage warhead, and Zazie Beetz's 
extraordinarily lucky domino. Although maybe I shouldn't shortcut the recap too much, as there's really not an awful lot else to say about Deadpool 2, certainly that wasn't said about the first film. It's, again, largely based on, for this sort of film at least, outrageous jokes, violence treated for laughs, throwaway references and fourth wall breaking, and for some reason a running gag about dubstep. But <laughs> as mentioned earlier, if you liked it before, I'm about 90% confident you'll like it this time round, and if you didn't, I'm 100% sure there's nothing here that will force a reconsideration. As Deadpool 2 is a very heavily comedy-skewed action comedy, there's not a lot more to be said about it, to be honest. If this is the sort of thing you'll find funny, you'll like it, and if not, you won't. So, like any comedy, it's entirely dependent on your particular comic tastes, so it's tough to say much more than if you think the trailer was funny, then you'll probably find the film funny. In terms of secondary considerations, the action sequences are, by comic book standards, executed as well as any of the other X-Men outings, which is to say, well enough, but on something of a restrained budget compared to the Marvel outings, and rather more coherent than the bulk of DC affairs, and it's not a film that's stretching anyone's acting capabilities, but Brolin's commendably gruff and plays a decent straight man to Reynolds' capering fool, and both Brianna Hildebrand and Zazie Beetz's more laid-back turns provide a satisfying counterpoint. Julian Dennison is also quite empathetic and carries the emotional heart of the film, or what passes for one, quite well. There's the usual complaints raised about the whiteness and maleness of the film, which may have some validity, but in a film this stupid it's hard to take it seriously. I do not I do however take some exception to killing off Vanessa's character motivation not purely because it's the sort of lazy writing that this film itself tries to lampoon but because she was one of the most interesting characters in the first film. I see some complaints remain about Karan Sony's Dupinder the heavily accented taxi driver and if that's all you'd reduce the character to I suppose I can see the point but I'd argue if you listen to what he's actually saying then it's, he's quite far from any of the stereotypes but again in a film as dumb as this one it's not a hill I'm choosing to die on. <laughs> so, so where do we land after all this? Uh, as I've said repeatedly, well, personally, I found it quite funny, so I enjoyed it. There you go. Um, that said, even having enjoyed it, I think this is quite enough of Deadpool, thank you so very much, and the prospect of another film following this game plan so closely is not one that I would welcome at all. Okay then, I'm going to give you two options. You can have both if you wish, and one follow the other, but uh, you can have the usual unnecessarily verbose me in response to this or you can have an unusually taciturn me (laughs) I'll give you the unusually taciturn one first and you can tell me if you want more after that go on then okay this film bored my tits off (laughs) hashtag make Drew's tits great again (laughs) 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 oh I'm trying to lose weight Craig don't the opposite of that please Same as you went on the Deadpool diet. Well, give us give us a long version then. Okay. The, the long version is really, really bored with this stuff. Uh, um, yeah, I didn't particularly care for the first film, but I did watch it again last week before I went to see this, and I thought, it's okay. It had gone from being like a two out of three, a two out of five film to a three out of five film, something like that. It's, I had a bit more appreciation for the second time round. This film, though, I genuinely, I perhaps chuckled very, very slightly about six times in the whole towers. That's not an exaggeration in any way, shape or form. And I really, I was just so bored. I didn't care about anyone or anything. And with the exception of the woman who plays Domino, I honestly didn't think that a single person in this film had even the slightest hint of charisma. None at all. Particularly, I was particularly disappointed by Josh Bolin, who I like a lot, and he was like, oh, he is the gruff man. And then there's this CGI man and the other CGI man who isn't Vinny Jones, and that was the one upside I could find for the entire film was that Vinny Jones wasn't in it. <laughs> I thought the the kid was incredibly unlikable and I didn't care about him at all. Yeah, you're not even getting the unnecessarily verbose normal me. I just, I didn't care about a single person. It really bored me. It's not funny. It wasn't necessary. Ryan Reynolds is terrible. And, yeah, it's crap, don't watch it. <laughs> I I really enjoyed the first movie, um, although by the end of its running time, I had the feeling it was beginning to outstay its welcome. And I've never felt the need to go back and watch it again, and I don't necessarily think I want any more. Yeah, I, I'm definitely of that. Like, and see. I don't care whether or not Vinny Jones <laughs> is it. I think your mileage will vary depending upon your, like you say, your sense of humour. You know, you know exactly what Ryan Reynolds' shtick is, and he's been allowed to bring his shtick wholesale to mm. the character of Deadpool in movie form. So, yes, if you find Ryan Reynolds intolerable, despite the fact in the first movie, you know, you, you see very little of Ryan Reynolds, 
you're probably not going to enjoy it. But enough people, judging by the box office, seem to enjoy Ryan Reynolds' shtick now. Although I don't know what's different about his shtick now compared to all the other shtick that didn't make money at the box office for years. But, um, yeah. So I managed to say a lot without saying anything there. <laughs> Go me. Go me. Go to politics. Mm-hmm. Mm, nothing to lose. <laughs> Well, just your dignity, self-respect. <laughs> I'm impressed you feel I have any left. <laughs> Thank you. I'm an optimist, Craig. I'm, I'm an optimist. Since when? <laughs> no, listen to our most recent podcast. I even found... I'll well, give the podcast to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> That's our one about homes, you know, our podcast. But, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I am a secret optimist. Uh, I, I try to find something good in things that are otherwise bad. Mm. Cool. Not that I'm suggesting you're otherwise bad. No, that's all right. That's all right. Ah, dear. That's that then. Guess that will take us on to a quiet place, which is Drew. Like so, yeah, this, is, this is Drew speaking about a horror film. Imagine mm. how this is going to go. Mm. <laughs> aliens. Big, bitey, blind aliens with an incredibly keen sense of hearing, are eating all of the humans. Naughty aliens. <laughs> well, naughty, probably aliens. Who knows? But A Quiet Place rightly thinks we don't need to know. We are dropped into a world where humans are an endangered, hunted species. A barefoot family moves in silence to an abandoned store, looking for supplies and medicine, while trying to avoid making any noise that could attract the toothy and hungry monsters to their location. The daughter of the family has a particular disadvantage. She's deaf. After a tragedy strikes the family, we jump forward almost a year to find the family and a now pregnant Evelyn, Emily Blunt, having created a fairly comfortable, though fragile, life on a farm. But always there's the danger of the nasty beasties, coupled with adolescent angst. Oh, and you know, the great problem of how you raise a baby. Not typically known for being quiet in a world with monsters who hunt by sound. There will be blood. Really, that's it for your setup. It's pretty high concept stuff. Humans are getting hunted and they have to be quiet. Uh, so, this is a horror film. Will it surprise you to know that I had problems with this film? <laughs> but for once, it's not the excessively loud stabs, or more accurately, stab, of noise. That actually made absolute sense. The sound massively amplified due to the shock it caused the danger it created, and that it was relative to the subdued noise levels of the character's surroundings. There is a sound-related issue that I had a problem with, though, and that was that if the survivors truly did have to be quite so careful and silent, almost ludicrously so, then the idea that there is any point at which the creatures wouldn't be able to hear them when nearby is laughable. I did, however, successfully explain this away as them practising good oral hygiene. But... There is one moment, very early on, that threatened to derail the entire thing. Yet somehow, I made it through. Which is not like me to be quite so forgiving. I have a particular dislike, though we all know by dislike I mean deep antipathy, for events and films that rely on a misunderstanding or lack of a single obvious action. But the film's early drama is caused by a character who has already been shown to be competent and sensible, acting in a very stupid manner. Simply not giving the batteries along with the noisy toy to her brother would have evaded the entire problem. The screenwriters aren't new to the game, so it smacks of lazy writing rather than not knowing how to set up that tragedy. Although, also, I suppose you could call me an evil bastard, but I'm glad that the stupid little gut got munched. (laughs) Idiot. However, in a manner most unlike me, I managed to forgive that sin, perhaps because the film's world had pulled me in almost immediately. I find both John Krasinski and Emily Blunt sympathetic and likeable, though I have my doubts whether John Krasinski's acting standards is generally is particularly feature film worthy. And the constant dread I felt for Regan, the deaf girl who needed to be quiet to survive yet was at a huge disadvantage in doing so, kept the tension quite high for me throughout. Still not actually scary though, obviously. That would be madness. I just found it thoroughly effective, taut and efficient. My only other thought is that I wish they had gone all in on the quietness thing and used only diegetic sound. I would have found that thoroughly rewarding, but I guess the filmmakers were afraid the audience would dislike a total lack of score. 
So, shock of the night, and for some of our listeners in particular, I recommend this film. I think I watched about half of this film going, this is a great gimmick. And <laughs> it never really got past being a great gimmick for me. And by the end of it, my attention had sort of wandered, and I stopped caring about it quite so much. Um, rallies a bit by the end. I thought it was a reasonably strong ending. But, uh, yeah, John Krasinski and the... I guess the familial, familial relationship works pretty well, I think. That's that, that's probably a nice warm emotional heart of it, and that seemed fairly believable in a film that otherwise stretches it. And, yeah, it's it's almost good enough to sustain its gimmick, but in, in the end, not quite. It's I still didn't dislike it. It's a, I'd still, I still recommend it. I still think people should watch it, but I was not as blown away as many other people have been. So I wouldn't like to say that I was blown away, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I really I hadn't expected that at all. I saw it in a cinema. Did you see it in your house, Scott? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that made some difference or not. But uh, yeah, it's especially for a genre that I find constantly unrewarding. This was a really pleasant surprise for me. Again, mm-hmm. I had some issues with it, but the fact that I was even willing to forgive some of the plot holes uh, was <laughs> remarkable. So something immediately just like, okay, this is interesting. Go on, you've got my attention. So yeah, I'm not blown away with that. I know it's had a lot of very high praise, which seems... It's nothing special enough for to warrant that sort of level of praise, but I still found it just yeah, a very competent and rewarding watch. <clears throat> you know, I'm predisposed to appreciating everything that Emily Blunt (laughs) says and does. Of course. And obviously I was like, all right, okay, four-star reviews across the board for a horror movie. Uh, I actively hated everything about this film (laughs) from about two minutes in, and I don't buy pretty much anything about it. It doesn't have the courage of its convictions at all. It sets itself up as a film that is going to have some sort of conviction to stick to its own internal plot logic. And like you say, Drew, the logical climax, the logical... Uh, end point of that would have been diagetic sound. I think it would have enhanced the experience yeah, um, greatly. Although I think just deleting all known copies of the print would also enhance this film. <laughs> um, I did not find the characters believable. At the point at which, under the premise of this movie, uh, you lose a child, you're still two up at this point, and you decide to endanger your lives and those of your children and anyone else who may be around by creating a small screaming human. Um, <laughs> I lose all sympathy for you and your plight, and I think you deserve everything you've got coming to you. <laughs> I was so annoyed by this movie. I thought, uh, ten minutes in, I thought, okay, um, they've had the courage to kill a child, that's not what I was expecting uh, to start with, I mean not particularly explicitly, um, but in a quite shocking way. Um, yeah, satisfying th- too little idiot. Yes, they make the classic mistake that every film ever has made despite everyone always saying don't make this mistake, and everyone still does, of showing the creature, and when we see the creature it's ridiculous <laughs> and massively no, Craig, derivative it has years, that's not ridiculous. Ma- massively derivative of every other type of creature the sound gimmick works when the film wants it to work and doesn't in other situations mm. On some occasions, the creatures will come running from three miles away at the sound of a mouse fart. At others, people clumsily drop things. Nothing happens. <laughs> These creatures can slice through the side of a grain silo, but they're baffled by people hiding in a cellar protected by, not a door, but a mattress. <laughs> um, I don't... Oh, I. Whatever. If people enjoyed it, that's fine. I have no idea what's going on whatsoever uh, with the appreciation for this movie. And it actively annoyed me. Um, and you can probably tell that. Uh, I, give <laughs> yes. it a ma- I give it a massive avoid. Uh, um, yeah, I, there are like issues there. Like, you clearly mentioned the same thing that I did about the, the sounds. Like, yeah, if they happen to be that quiet, the, yeah. the fact that they could be in the same room as them um, and not hear them is ridiculous. For some reason, and it really isn't like me... I forgave that watch because I, I don't know something hooked me in. So this is just it's so strange. I like this horror film, which almost a, never happens. And it's you a great, don't. it's a great premise because it's a really, really simple setup, and all yeah. of the best horror premises are the the more the more rules and stipulations you try to apply to a horror premise, the less well it's going to go for you because inherently, as a genre, it benefits from being kept simple mm-hmm. because typically. Uh, horror films are built on ludicrous notions to begin with. So the number of those ludicrous notions <laughs> you limit the film to, typically the better off it works. And it looked like this was going to be a film with... A, I, at first I thought, that's that's actually, um, to the best of my knowledge, a, a 
a reasonably uh, fresh premise. I don't know that another film has done that before, but roll with it. You know, I lean into it. This is a multiplex film, and you've already taken a huge gamble by having a multiplex movie that's got almost no dialogue in it. So what have you got to lose by just going the extra 20%? Do you know... There's also other really annoying stuff in it. Little things this movie did annoy me. The whole thing of the the scene near the start where they they light the lights, and I think we see other sort of communities, apparently, I think that's what it was supposed to be, lighting signal lights and stuff as well. But but don't ever expect to meet anybody or have that amount to anything whatsoever. I'm I'm not sure why you would introduce the notion of these other pockets of uh, human existence if we're not going to even remotely touch on them, save for one bizarre scene where they stumble across an old guy in a forest. Mm -hmm. Um... Oh, I don't know. I also feel like, um, and I'm probably completely wrong about this, I also feel like I was promised that this was the, these creatures were actually a supernatural presence. And so I was, I want to say that sort of the marketing material was, or was leaning that way or that I'd explicitly read somewhere that this was a supernatural uh, horror film. And I think that possibly would have worked better as a premise because the alien thing is just so silly. The aliens, which, by the way, huge plot exposition pinboards that we always have to have in these movies. The type of pinboard with notes on it that nobody would ever write on a pinboard <laughs> that just explicitly yeah. spread out plot what points. What is the weakness? What is their weakness? Question mark. Bulletproof? Exclamation mark. So Why are they so mean to us? The, uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want me to get from the shops? Why are um, they not loved as baby aliens? <laughs> exactly. Um, all these ridiculous plot points built out on the board um, and one of them being that these things apparently took on the army and won because they're bulletproof but it's alright, <coughs> Emily Blunt with a 12 gauge, no problem, one shot kill I, don't, also, I, don't, I, like, I don't I like their attitude in that scene too um, it's, but I think also, to me it's like I bet she bought that shotgun at S-Mart it had that sort of feel to that scene <laughs> I just I wasn't impressed by any of it. It doesn't. It doesn't abide by its own internal logic, um, and it could quite easily have done so. Um, uh, all of the points that I felt it failed on, which are numerous, would have been easily avoidable. Um, and I think you've gone to the you've gone to the trouble of setting up this um, really, actually, um, in fairs elegant premise. It really is. Um, it's quite a beautiful premise. Quite a, one of those that makes you think, "Wow, actually, why haven't? Why has no one thought of this before?" That's actually pretty good for all that we've strip mined horror for its, um, you know, for it, for its various cliched <laughs> setups. This gives you at least, if nothing else, the legacy of this film. I think for me, uh, in a positive sense, will be that it at least shows that maybe there are some original ideas still out there if we're willing to look hard enough for them, but it certainly didn't deliver on any of it. I'm, and I'm, I'm baffled by the box office and the, the press praise for this. I really genuinely am, and I'm not saying that to be contrary. I just feel it's one of those where I'm just like, have I watched the same movie as everybody else? <laughs> um, I'll just say two things. I don't know if I'm aided by having known nothing about this film going in, because my entire marketing for this film was... Scott said, I was going to see A Quiet Place. Uh, what's that? It's a film with John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. Oh, okay. Mm. And then it, it's like it was on the cinema and I watched it. Uh, <laughs> but you're, you're making me like it less the more you talk, please stop talking. <laughs> you're right about John Krasinski as, a, as an actor. I'm, I'm sorry. And I'm not it's just not saying that. not feature film worthy, is he? Yeah, I'm not just saying that because, because of Sour Grapes, because he stole my woman. <laughs> I genuinely don't find him all that, all that great of a presence. And what was that yell... What was that? Sc- <laughs> Come on, John. You can shout better than that. <laughs> Dad? <laughs> Your first opportunity to scream in years, and this is what you produce? I suppose weakened vocal cords. That's what it'll be. Atrophy of the vocal cords. Um. <laughs> Okay, John, take your meds, go home. <laughs> ah, sorry, Solo. Yes, then, Solo. Yes, uh, another one of those films bedeviled with reshoots and changes of the director, but <laughs> so in some ways it's surprising that Solo made its release date, and in some other ways quite obvious how it did. Alden... Um, <laughs> Alden Ehrenreich, I can never pronounce this. Alden Ehrenreich steps into the Han Solo role and 
as we're introduced to him, already working for a local Karelian crime syndicate, but planning to escape the grimy underbelly to a better life, off-world, with girlfriend Kira, played by Emilia Clark. sadly. This soon goes awry, with Han signing up for an Imperial flight school with Kira left behind. He vows to make enough money to buy a ship and return for her. Years later, washed out of the pilot programme for his rebellious streak, he's an infantryman who stumbles on Woody Harrelson's Beckett and his crew in the middle of a heist, and, after some twists, worms his way into their plans, escaping the Imperials along with former prisoner Chewbacca. They go on to stage a daring raid to nick some valuable fuel supplies, which goes disastrously thanks to some outside interference, leaving Beckett's former crew dead and reliant on Han and Chewie. He's also puzzlingly now deemed to be in debt to crime syndicate Crimson Dawn, so is hauled before Paul Bettany's Dryden Voss to explain himself. Beckett and Han, after some prompting, offer up an alternative, much riskier heist, to make good, but they must take one of Voss's employees along for the trip. This turns out to be Kira. Shocker, really. So, off they go, but of course they need a ship. Hence Lando Calrissian, played by Donald Glover. Hence Millennium Falcon, and unfortunately, hence his annoying robot co-pilot L337, voiced by Phoebe <laughs> I'm not saying elite. Wait, wait L337? <laughs> yes. yes um, oh. it's, they don't actually mention that in the film, but in the, when you look at IMDb in the credits, mm. yep. Uh, it's that sort of film. And also some more outside interference, along with some deal-changing and other miscellaneous double-crossing and backstabbing. So, Solo appears at an odd time for the Star Wars franchise. A vocal contingent vehemently hated The Last Jedi, which is their prerogative, and claim it was a commercial failure, which is an odd way to think of $1.3 billion box office. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why this translated into talk of boycotting Solo, a completely different film from two completely different directors, co-written by the dude responsible for the most beloved instalment, but no one's ever accused internet mobs of coherence. So, well, not. <laughs> with Solo looking like it will claw its way to maybe $360 million as it shuffles out of cinemas worldwide, I'm sure they'll be happy to claim victory in their efforts to try and kill a franchise they say they love. Sorry, I'm not quite sure what the point was. Oh. <laughs> I, I would, however, argue that as with most Twitter storms, the wider world did not even hear of this drama, and instead didn't turn up because it sandwiched between more tentpoles than its usual Star Wars Christmas window, and, well, it has a fundamental hole in the marketing of this film, because no one gives a goddamn about the origins of Han Solo. <laughs> Solo's lovable rogue character in the original trilogy is straight out of the big book of character archetypes and is entirely <laughs> self-describing. Yes, <laughs> and intentionally so. Yes. Yes. Solo, then, is an answer to a question no one asked. He's certainly, he's certainly one of the most lovable characters of the original trilogy, but he's not one of the most interesting. Yeah, there's no need for a backstory here. And the backstory <laughs> you get isn't particularly satisfying either. There's really no difference between the fresh-faced young Han you meet at the start of this film and the still fresh-faced young Han at the end of the film, yes. making this a character arc with very few degrees in it. <laughs> it's not like it's taking any risks in all the content either, and the things it chooses to flesh out are really weird. There's a throwaway line in the originals about Han winning the ship from Lando in a game of space poker. So here, of course, we spend ten minutes or so in a scene about space poker, which is about as exciting uh, as you'd expect a scene watching people playing cards would be, assuming you hadn't seen Casino Royale. Uh, however... <laughs> I'm assuming that all um, card games are about having cards and it's not missing all the nuance of bluffing and stuff, so yeah. you don't even understand card games. <laughs> if, however, you can get over the inherent pointlessness of it all, and bearing in mind this is Star Wars... It's not a stranger to inherent pointlessness. Uh, Solo feels much closer to the original trilogy than anything that's come after it. It is, mm. for its faults, a light, breezy space opera with broad characters, a general sense of good humour with the odd action set piece thrown in. And that makes it a breath of fresh air in a series that's growing increasingly consumed by its own mythology, or if you prefer, spending too much time sniffing its own farts. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, the least inter- interesting part of this film is Solo himself. A lot of people blame Ian Reich for this, which is a little unfair. I mean, he's in a completely unwinnable position. He's either going to be derided for doing a Harrison Ford impersonation or be derided for straying too far from Harrison Ford's take. So Mm. he's doing about as well as anyone can here, but there's just not that much for him to do. Kira, or perhaps Amelia Clark, presents us with a mystery. In a universe where we've established that Space Paisley, or was it Space Renfrew, exists? Um, Certainly we've established (laughs) that accents other than received pronunciation are possible, so how come on Karelia, the grimy underworld characters cut about like they've just stumbled off the set of the crown. <laughs> I, I rather suspect the answer to this is that Clark has an acting range that can be measured in thousandths of a millimetre. <laughs> but to be scrupulously I'm fair glad to you her, went there. in this film, she is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> 
Everyone else is pretty decent, though. Although it would be a much more interesting film if it was focused on everyone else that wasn't these two guys. Um, Donald Glover's eminently watchable, and Woody Harrelson and his crew are, for the short time we have with them, much more intriguing than our supposed stars. The dialogue is, I guess, better than other Star Wars films of late, and despite my repeated misgivings about the lead (laughs) characters, it still turned out to be a fun enough little Star Wars outing that gratifyingly doesn't take itself anything like as seriously as the other Disney-backed outings. It's just that it's in the service of a story that's just not all that important to anyone, even it turns out Han Solo himself. Uh, it's an easy watch, it's an entertaining two-hour diversion but on reflection it does feel quite pointless and that makes it hard to recommend the bother of dragging a family to the cinema to see this. Catch up with it at some point but it's certainly not essential viewing for anyone. Slammed. That's actually more positive than most of my other Star Wars views. So, <laughs> yeah. you know. well, I was going to say I found something else positive to say about A Quiet Place and that it's got better dialogue than most of the other recent Star Wars films as well. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All three lines of it. It's not the most silent movies, Craig. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I actually thoroughly enjoyed this. Perhaps part of that comes out of simply not expecting to. <laughs> He's taking a knock on the head this much. <laughs> no, I, mean, I think I probably enjoyed it as much as Scott Wingle slightly more. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absolutely unnecessary, Scott's right, and it's throwaway, but I just find it kind of like a. F- That's all right. F- yeah. Fun. Yeah. I mean, so, film. so was Star Wars. Yeah, yeah you know exactly. what I mean? Sometimes throwaway and fun is mm. what you go to the cinema for. Yeah. And, and Scott is so right that it's ask, answering questions nobody asked, or if they did ask, they really ought not to be asking them. And like. Mm. It's something, uh, I'm going to basically steal Scott's words from a conversation we had last week, I think, but they are, it's like it's ask, answering questions like, where did Han Solo get his um, distinctive gun? Well, who gives a <laughs> sh- <laughs> and again, it's, it's Star Wars true. Every nut and bolt has to be accounted for within yeah, but, 100 years of its recent history. Yeah, but the thing is, right... That gun is only iconic because people like Star Wars and there's never been a gun like it. But there's never been any suggestion that in the universe of Star Wars there was anything special anything about that special. gun. Yeah, it's like the Beretta it's, of yeah, the exactly. Star Wars universe. A Beretta 92F is exactly the opposite thing I was thinking of while watching this, Greg. Exactly. Uh, and do you know what? It turns out that the, the story behind his iconic gun is he got it from someone else. Yes. Wow. That's no. the thing that's going on. I was talking about like, yeah, I've never wondered. I've never even thought about Hansel's gun at all. Um, other than, yeah, okay, that's Hansel's gun, I guess. But, um, like, but now the I, question I, is, I, I, I where did Woody Harrelson get it from? I don't know the answer. I, mean, <laughs> I would love it if this film just went out of its way to really annoy fans and it opens with the scene with the character saying, wow, I really like that gun, Han. Where did you get it from? And he turns around and they're in Han's room and he goes, from this drawer. And he pulls the drawer open and there are just a hundred identical guns in it. <laughs> they were just here when I bought the place. It's just a question nobody ought to be asking. <laughs> if I would have applied thought to the question of where did Han Solo get his gun, my answer would very quickly come, I don't know, Space what, Walmart? One of those grabber machines down the arcade. <laughs> I, I'm going it's to actually guess, a pretty bad gun, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm going to guess if it's a gun, it probably came from a gun shop. I'm, I know I'm going way out there. <laughs> That's the thing with the Star Wars universe, though. Everything has to be inherited somewhere with an elaborate backstory. Nobody just yeah. buys anything from a catalogue. Uh, <laughs> and again, um, Scott, I'm stealing your words here. Um, because uh, I liked your turn of phrase on this. Uh, you know, the idea of getting rid of Lord and Miller and bringing in Ron Howard again was to, was to make it less goofy. Mm. You've got to wonder quite how goofy this was to begin with, because <laughs> yes, it's pretty it's damn really goofy, goofy now. <laughs> um, That's the from, point of Han Solo, though. He's goofy. Yeah. I probably liked the goofier bits better. I, liked Actually, it when yeah, it was, I probably did, too. I liked it when it was just spending minutes talking about um, Lando's impressive cloak collection. <laughs> yes, that, that was funny. Um, <laughs> or when he's the, the sort of self-important moment when Donald Glover's sitting there narrating his life story Yeah, <laughs> for his book... Uh, uh, um, yeah, I mean, oh, not, honestly, I didn't have many issues with this film. Amelia Clark is obviously terrible, but it, it's not Terminator Genesis terrible. No, um, thankfully, thankfully, yes. The yeah, the name of that robot is really stupid. That really bothered me. But I didn't find <laughs> that until afterwards. And this is my robotic best friend, M Eight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, it's it goes it goes with the long um, tradition of really really stupid Star Wars character names too, because you know. 
There was Darth Father and Blonde <laughs> Calamari, <laughs> the squid ring people who are fish, right? Although I think this film possibly takes the biscuit because there is a minor character who is in one of the card games, I believe, who is a sentient lobster whose name... Right? You remember, you remember, did you think of Lobster, Lobster Thermidor, the most famous lobster dish, right? Mm-hmm. The character name of said sentient lobster is Therm Scissor Punch. <laughs> <laughs> and when I first heard that a few months ago, I thought, this is, I'm being punked here. This can't possibly be true, but it's true. <laughs> what are these people doing? What are they doing? <laughs> How many billions of dollars did they spend? And that got past the meeting stage. That got past the actors sitting at the table. Oh, I'm not reading for that. Give me, give me peace. Therm, therm scissor punch. Yes. Oh my God almighty. They are. Neither wonder. Listen, that's the good thing about this and then uh, The Last Jedi then, which I finally got round to watching, by the way. What an unremitting torrent of pish. And the, it, they really seem to be drawing the poison out of the, the fan base at the minute, do they not? Um, but there you go, Thermos Scissor Punch. <laughs> Sounds not so much like a, a carefully thought out character name as, a, as an act of active trolling. Uh, oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Oh, I want to watch it now. <laughs> I keep saying I've given up on Star Wars. Well, I'm cashing out of Star Wars now. I don't really have an interest in it anymore, but I always end up watching them. <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, there are a number of things I would have... You're still thinking about Thermos Sister Punch, aren't you? <laughs> Brother to the Mon Calamari. Um, there are things I would have cut out of this film. Um, tan... <laughs> Which I'll get to eventually. That's so stupid. <laughs> Naturally. I'm sorry. I'll turn my mic off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a few things I would have taken out, Scott. The creature that they find in the middle of that black hole. It's like it seemed it struck me as being very like the Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the, there's always a bigger monster sort of thing. It seemed unnecessary and in many ways awfully like the end of the Star Trek reboot. Yeah. Even visually. Yeah. Uh, Tandy Newton's character, uh, I don't see what the point of that character was, given that what happens to her seemed to have, A, no consequence, and B, what she did for the sake of a robbery seems incredibly pointless and stupid. I would have dropped that. But otherwise, Mm. it's, yeah, it was just kind of a fun film. There's, There's some fun moments... For the most part, the interaction between Woody Harrelson's crew is quite entertaining. Yeah. And it's so much less fan service than Rogue One. Yeah, that's true. There are some references, but if you don't know them, they just pass you by and it's not a problem. Yeah. And it's so much less on the nose and so much less fan service than Rogue One was. There are... I mean, there's that, there's a revelation of a character towards the end which completely confused me because I'm thinking, didn't that thing happen to that person and that other thing? Um, But apparently it's actually no, um, obviously stupidly because that person could possibly have survived, but uh, it's explained a lot in the Star Wars Clone Wars cartoon and Star Wars Rebels cartoon. Hmm. So it is explained, but but if you don't follow that, which clearly I don't, I'm like, "Eh? what? That makes no sense, but that's so minor. And it's right at the end of the film. It's not a problem. The only other thing that bothered me is I enjoyed it pretty well. I thought it was a kind of fun film. It's no masterpiece by any means, but it has a lot more of the, just the general kind of adventure feeling of the original trilogy Yeah. than anything that's come since. The only thing that bothered me was that they made the Imperial March diegetic sound. Yeah, that was a bit too goofy as well. That was perhaps yeah, more. So, should, so <laughs> basically, now, if assuming that Solo's canon... When Darth Vader appears in The Empire Strikes Back with the Imperial March playing, basically what you're saying is Darth Vader's music's now an advertising jingle. Yeah. <laughs> that, that bothered me quite substantially, actually. But <laughs> otherwise, yeah, it's a fun film and probably the best Star Wars film since Jedi. Yeah. Um, 
I agree, which is maybe more a condemnation of other Star Wars films than <laughs> yes, intense praise for this one. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's fun. I'm sure this will find its audience on home formats and will be reevaluated at that point. I think it's they're not going to not make, <coughs> make money back on it by the time home sales, yeah, and whatnot are in. Come on, and stuff, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will, at the very least it will claw back its, its budget and its advertising. But it's, It'll break even. Yeah, uh, and it's certainly it's not really going to stop them making any more of these films. I mean, there's, yeah. this, this is how franchises work these days. It's the <laughs> hope you get one or two big hits a year and that goes... Well, that's the, that's the thing. It's not like every other one they've done so far hasn't made over a billion dollars yet. Yeah. So, <laughs> OK, you made, you've, you've made one that hasn't. Get over it. <laughs> yeah, and part of the problem also is that it's like, Disney isn't making a lot of money on Solo because Disney was at the same time making all the money on Infinity War. So, yeah. mm. you know, they can't really have all of the money. Mm. Not all of the all of the money. No, just all of the most of the money. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this seems a perfectly prominent theory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <coughs> Heart bleeds for them, it really does. Yep, so tough gig. It's a tough gig. So I suppose that brings us to the end. Um, to the Twitters, I guess. Yes. So, Perpetual Dub Machine, at Blake Wrights on Twitter, from the I'm the Host podcast, of course, uh, if had vague hopes that Deadpool 2 might do more than lampoon the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, than just peppering in shout-outs among scatological bits and sight gags, but it felt like more of the same, albeit with very slightly more heart. Meh. Which <laughs> is, can't really argue with, that is pretty much the case. And Matt Toller, at M. Toller on Twitter, says of A Quiet Place, they somehow managed a not-awful movie out of a Swiss cheese premise that seemed more inevitable than innovative. I could never get away from questioning the plot mechanics enough to get invested in the story, and really didn't understand the critical plays it got other than, one, people like John Krasinski want to talk up his project, or two, that the bar for good horror is really, really low. Well, that's certainly true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Didn't see any of the others, but no comment other than to say that they're all well past his various fatigue thresholds for superheroes, Star Wars slash remakes. At a certain point I've gotten so sick of the genre settings that I don't even care if they're good, which uh, is entirely relatable on a number of levels. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's easy to empathise with that standpoint. Well, that's <laughs> one of the great issues why you, you've not been hearing a lot of me lately, is that besides not having a great deal of time, I'm also just incredibly <laughs> fatigued by movies in general. It's very difficult for me to work up the, uh, the enthusiasm to actually sit down and watch anything at the minute. But there you go. And then a quiet place comes along and promises to be different. You bastard. <laughs> Paddington 2 was all right this year. <laughs> That's because that film just pressed all the daddy buttons for you. Well, it did, apart from the one where my daughter was sat next to me, absolutely hating it. Really? Yeah, well, she didn't like it at all. I thought she liked the first one. She did. There was not enough, not enough slapstick in this one for the kids. Uh. I've had, I've had other parents agree with me on that one as well, or or share a similar experience. So it's aimed more towards adults than kids, and that's if anything, yeah, as an, as, an, as an adult, I thought this is fantastic, but like lots of kids were getting fidgety with it. <laughs> so time for a dark and gritty, uh, dark and gritty reboot. Yes, <laughs> just go all in. <laughs> Paddington, the heroine years. <laughs> I've got a very particular set of skills, Mister Brown. <laughs> Make me a nightmare for people like you. <laughs> <laughs> So, thanks very much for your attention. We will wrap this up by saying goodbye. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, please do. Um, probably your best outlet for that is Twitter these days. We're on there, at FuzzOnFilm. Hit us up, give us a shout out. Thanks to everyone who's uh, contributed over the past couple of weeks, and we shall see you next with a look at some time travel films. So until then, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that I will be joined in that notion by Craig Eastman. I don't like you, you uh, son of a bitch. And Zoot Avondale. Bye. <laughs> Ta-da.